Hello and welcome to the Centrist Podcast. Today we are joined by Leila Moran, who is running to be the next leader of the Liberal Democrats. Today we talk to Leila Moran about her life, why she wants to be the next leader of the Liberal Democrats, and her vision for the country, all in today's episode of the Centrist Podcast. Yes, I will be standing for the leadership of the Liberal Democrats. The rise of artificial intelligence means more and more jobs are being automated, and it's not just blue-collar jobs anymore. I think it is high time that we start to end the unnecessary stress placed on pupils and teachers by high-stakes testing, in particular primary schools. So first of all, Leila, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So straight into our first question then, which is what inspired you to get involved in politics in the first place and what has been your journey thus far? So I uh, was inspired to get into politics because of my work prior, uh, which was to be uh, when I was a maths and physics teacher. My background's very international. Uh, my mother is a Palestinian, a Christian family from Jerusalem, uh, part of the diaspora and, and left, went to Jordan, and then uh, the family went to, uh, eventually to Greece. Um, my father was actually very working class background, first in his family to go to university, um, and uh, went on to join uh, what was then called the European Commission when I was one. So we moved around the world with his job, went to places like Ethiopia, Jamaica, a really very diverse childhood, experiencing lots of different cultures. Um, my first love was actually physics. It was physics. I went to Imperial where I studied physics there and uh, that got me into teaching. And it was through teaching that I became activated because you know, having had an upbringing like that, where I was traveling from country to country, some of the poorest uh, in the world, in the late 80s, people will remember, you know, Live Aid and uh, the Great Famine uh, that was happening uh, in Ethiopia at the time. I mean, that's when I was there. And to then compare that to now, where we tonight, there will ch have be children in this country that go to bed hungry. And yet we are a G7 country with an economy that should absolutely be able to support the most vulnerable in its society. I mean, I just think that's just so wrong and it gets me very angry. And uh, you have two choices. Uh, well, I find I have two choices when I uh, feel very incensed about something. You either uh, you know, decide it's too much to bear and you're just going to put it in a box and there's nothing I can do about it, or uh, you find the resolve to try and change it. And that's why I joined the Liberal Democrats. So education is, has always been the top priority for me, but actually also inequality more generally in society. So given that journey into politics then, um, would you be able to explain a bit more then about how that has affected your vision for the country as a whole? Yeah, so I mean, it's worth us reflecting, I think, on where we are right now, which is that coronavirus has exposed those deep inequalities and unfairness in our society. And whilst, you know, ten over 10 years ago when I joined the party, I was aware of them. I think we do now have this opportunity because coronavirus has shown everybody that these exist and we shouldn't go back to how things were before. So there is this moment to change and to move forward together as a nation after Brexit, where it felt so divided through this period where we can have a fairer, greener and more compassionate country and where everyone has the security to live life as they choose. And that's very much the liberal approach to this. We need to have a society where the citizen is empowered and we use every lever of the state to help that happen, which includes businesses, which includes the state, which includes information 
for those people to make better choices. Um, and I've centered my pitch on three pillars. Now, the first won't surprise you, it's education, um, because I want to create an education system where children come out world ready, not just exam ready. Uh, but also today we've seen the chancellor uh, talk about young people and the fact that the economy is going to be very precarious over the next few years. So we also need an adult retraining program and we need to make sure that young people aren't left behind. Um, the second area, which I think is, is critically important and any candidate in this election who doesn't actively talk about the economy, um, I think is uh, doing us a disservice as a party because the COVID-19 crisis is also an economic crisis. It's not just a crisis. And unless we have uh, important things to say at this point, um, then we are going to get left out of the narrative. Um, what I've called for is we need increased investment in public services and key workers. I found it very revealing that, you know, Pretty Patel on the one hand before called them the low paid and then they became essential workers. We need to value our human infrastructure. We need to also look again at how we measure success in our economy. Uh, there is a uh, focus on GDP. And I have to say, growth is good. You know, growth is something that should be welcome. However, there are other things besides growth that we should be mindful of when we're making investments, in particular, what effect it's going to have on the environment and also what effect it might have on people's mental health. Um, and the third area is we need to look at the welfare state. And what I've seen is, you know, when lockdown happened, my post bag tripled over whelmed with cases of people trying to get onto universal credit and just mm. falling through the cracks. And whilst I wouldn't normally be an advocate for something like this, and I was, what I would say, I, would, I was universal basic income curious uh, for the lockdown, uh, because there's a really important question about how do you pay for it? Um, but at this point of incredible volatility in the economy, I think we do need to be looking at a way to make sure that while that volatility continues, you don't get the situations that I've seen that my constituents have ended up into. And you can call for changes in universal credit all you like, but it just hasn't materialized. Uh, and the party is now moving, I think, in the direction of a universal basic income as an emergency measure uh, during this time. And if we want to continue with it afterwards, well, then at that point, we may well have the data to be able to make an informed choice. Um, but the third area, and this is critically important, because one of my uh, big um, challenges to the party is how do we grow our base? How do we attract new people to the party? And we need to be front foot on the economy, uh, oh, sorry, on the environment. It's not just an economic crisis, it's also an environmental crisis. Young people up and down the country recognize this um, and we have to be front foot on the economy. So I say, let's reflect their urgency. Uh, let's have a green powered uh, recovery. Let's include young people in a young people citizens assembly because it is going to be young people who are going to have to bear the brunt of uh, the changes that we're going to have to make to the economy to ensure a green recovery. Um, but let's also talk about biodiversity. We don't do enough of that either. So given your vision overall for the country, um, maybe we should look at something a little bit more specific now in terms of policy. And one of the big ones that has been attracting a lot of attention is, of course, universal basic income. Um, so how would you see that working? How would you see that policy being implemented in real life? Yeah, so I think, I mean, we have to be very pragmatic um, and recognise there are lots of different versions of UBI. Um, and I don't think we should be heading towards the version of UBI that completely then removes any other 
help from the state in particular housing you know we have mm. a broken housing sector in this country and uh, i think that should remain separate and if people need help with their housing and ideally we should be building a lot more social houses we should be uh, looking at that as its as its own issue so let's perhaps park that for one side and the other version would be to also have it replace things like the nhs and uh, subsidy for education. And I don't think we should do that either. So let me be clear, I don't believe uh, that we should be having that version of UBI. And the way I, I would see it is it would be there to be enough to make sure that people, if they fall through the cracks, and that happens very quickly, you know, what's happening at the moment is people are getting calls on a Monday being made redundant on the Thursday. That's the level of change that we're seeing in our society right now and it's happening very very quickly with a lot of insecurity and in, when that happens there we have to recognize there are families in this country that have two three jobs who can't have the financial resilience to then make sure that there's food on the table the next week so i would see um a introduction at a, at a smallish level at the level of the basic bills and food that you might have to pay uh, as a family you know we're looking at uh, Compass, for example, has done some costings on this. They're looking at 40, 50 pounds a week uh, for an adult, uh, maybe a bit more if there's children. Um, and that initially can be paid for through closing of tax loopholes, particularly for the very highest uh, earners. Because actually the other side of the coronavirus crisis is that about 25% of the population are saving money during this time because they just don't have the same level of expenditure. Um, and there is an increase in inequality right now. So there is another way uh, that we can redistribute so that we are helping those who just don't have the same financial resilience. And I think if you set it at a level like that, then that would be very palatable to people. And people would understand that while we're going through this crisis, that is just the way we're going to help each other. And if you think how neighbors got to know each other during this crisis, how for the very first time, many people were discovering and growing in their communities and really feeling that sense of we are here for each other. I think a UBI set at a level like that would be uh, an economic reflection of that. So one of the questions I have then is, of course, in the current situation with COVID-19, the government is spending huge amounts of money and, of course, is implementing a, a new voucher scheme. So if that's successful, do you actually think that that will bolster the case for a universal basic income more broadly? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. And what we know is that if you give out things like that, uh, particularly to the lower earners, that's more likely to kickstart the economy. Um, and so I am supportive of that idea. It's also why I called for um, increases to child benefit during this time, um, because actually that is quite a progressive way of making sure that those lowest earners are able to put food on the table and make sure that they've got the equipment that they need uh, for their children to be able to learn. Um, so I do think that that is an interesting model, but let's see if it happens today. So I'd be, I'd be worried to continue to comment lest by the time you get this out, it's completely irrelevant. So given the policy like universal basic income, uh, which of course will try and win back voters, um, how more broadly will you try and win back voters in former heartlands such as the Southwest, Wales, and even uh, some places in the Southeast? Well, my number one priority if elected leader of the Lib Dems is how we can gain votes and seats at every level, but especially in our former heartlands. So the question has to be, how do we win? Um, and since the election, I've been listening. And that's a, a key way that I lead. I listen. And I've been listening to local campaigners. And they have 
a wealth of expertise. We have to tap into their expertise. We need a partnership approach, not a top-down approach as a party. And I think the general election review made this quite clear, that we are a bit of a faux democracy. Um, we talk about bottom-up in terms of governance, but we don't do it uh, ourselves in the way we campaign. Um, so the Zoom calls that I've been doing up and down the country, I've been actually able to offer the opportunity to more than three quarters of Lib Dem parties in our country to speak to me over the last few weeks, um, has given me ideas about where we should go. Uh, but I recognise that we have to do it together. Um, so here are a few, a few of those ideas that have emerged. I mean, we must provide better resources for our volunteers and local parties. Um, and we need to invest in our staff and training and development of a new generation of Lib Dem campaigners. Now, ALDC and HQ and state and regional parties, they all have their role to play. And my message to Lib Dem members is, I can't fix this alone. I need your help. Um, one of the other areas that we need to do is the message. You know, we heard at the last election that the message was wrong, that people felt that they weren't being listened to, and we can't have that again. So we need to find that broad message, you know, very similar to the time of Charles Kennedy, that broad message where people could see that we were on their side, whether it be on schools, the economy, care for loved ones, the environment. And my message will be a simple one, which is that Lib Dems will provide the security for every individual to live life as they choose. And we have to revive what liberalism means uh, for this century. Um, but we've got big challenges ahead too. And uh, actually the first set of challenges is going to be the super set of elections that we are expecting to have in 2021, which includes the Senate and Holyrood. Um, we need to build our councillor base. And that first year of me as leader, I am going to go around the country helping others to win those seats, listening to their voters, so that when we get to the 2024 election, we can replicate what we did in Oxford, Western Abingdon, where I created a group of progressive centre-left voters, which by the way, included a lot of conservative voters who also mm. identify this way. And we overturned a nine and a half thousand Tory majority in 2017 and went on to achieve the best ever result in my seat's history. I want to replicate that nationally. So then going back quickly just to policies like universal basic income then, uh, given that we have been speaking about those former heartlands, how, especially in the more conservative areas, um, a bit like the Southwest, which is, uh, has gone very conservative in recent years in terms of the MPs that they've sent back to Parliament, how do you think that they will take universal basic income? Do you think they'll like it? Do you think they'll dislike it? Um, will it be too left-wing for them if they are more conservative? So what do you think the reception for that will be like? I, well, I went to Devon and Cornwall. So after the election, I did, I went door knocking because I want to answer this question of if we are going to win, what's the message that's going to resonate in all parts of the UK? And actually, I purposefully didn't go door knocking in London and the Southeast, because apart from anything else, I feel like I know it pretty well. I stood in Battersea in 2010. I was born in London. I'm an MP for Oxford. I, I feel confident that I, I've got my finger on the pulse of uh, where we have a lot of members and actually where a lot of those conservative facing seats where we're closest are. However, that's not good enough. We also need a message that is going to resonate in places like Yorkshire, where I was the first place I went, actually places in you know, Kent. Uh, we need to be winning back also Devon and Cornwall. And I went there and I went door knocking and asked uh, their voters what they think. And I think what we're doing here in this conversation is a very activist thing to do, which is that we are mapping voters onto 
left right axes that they don't really identify with and what we need to primarily do is understand from those electors actually what really matters to them and what i heard most strongly from devon and cornwall but particularly cornwall was a sense of independence and a real sense of community and that we are there for each other you know and they were saying to me that they felt left behind, that they felt that the power lay primarily in Westminster, that they weren't listened to. I mean, what was very interesting about the conversations is that they were very easy to then tell people, well, yes, you feel this way, so do I, and it's because I'm a liberal. And when it came to looking after each other, that you know, slightly more rural, slower paced mentality, much of us have seen this during coronavirus, um, actually the idea of helping each other out in times of need, they understand. So I think, I wouldn't necessarily map it as just because UBI is in commentator terms and activist terms considered centre-left and because those voters sometimes vote Tory that they are centre-right and then therefore they don't match. Actually, I would say start where they are. They talk a lot about a sense of community and helping each other and let's show them that a policy like UBI is an answer to that. So thank you so much for coming on and we're almost at the end of uh, any questions. Um, but essentially my final question was just going to be, if you had to give members of Centre who are also uh, Lib Dem members at the same time, reasons, three big reasons that they should vote for you, what would they be? Thank you. Well, I mean, first of all, I have a proven track record of working with others and making a difference to people's lives. And actually, from the position we are now, we need to show people that we can do that. And I led a campaign for a coronavirus compensation scheme for families of key workers who tragically lose their lives in this period. And I did that by getting nearly 100 MPs from all parties, including backbench conservatives on board, we won the backing of the Daily Express newspaper and they credited me and the party and the group of MPs for what we were doing. We got it done. And that's not with the levers of government behind us or 50, 60 MPs. We, I did this in this period now. And that's what we need in a leader is someone who can get stuff done because that builds credibility and trust. And I'm turning my sights now uh, onto the coronavirus uh, crisis. And I, actually today, uh, I am pulling together the first all-party parliamentary group uh, for an independent COVID review so that we can avoid a second wave. And I'm working across the house to achieve this. And I think people's lives first, then they will know that they can trust you. But the second reason is that I know how to build a broad base of support. And I described in Oxwab how we won over thousands of Tory voters, not just once, but twice. Um, and in that seat, I'm supported by a progressive alliance of Lib Dems, Greens and Labour. You have to do both. There's a bit of a strange conversation in the party going on about who's best place to take votes off one or the other side. Actually, if you look at where we need to win, we need to do both. And the reason why I know this is going to work is because that's exactly what happened under Paddy and Charles. When we were last successful as a party, we had leaders who understood that you need to take from both sides and appeal to all sides. And that's the approach I'm offering. And only I can appeal to both moderate conservatives and the centre-left. And the final point is that change is essential. And I ask people to look at where we are now. I mean, we went to the dizzy heights of 20 something percent before the election. We then ended on 12 with one fewer MPs. And now the last opinion poll that 
I saw had us on 6%. Our support has halved since the general election. This is a pivotal moment for the country and it desperately needs a strong liberal voice. To win again, party must rebuild trust and support. And the Lib Dems can do this by signaling that we are renewed and that we are changing and that we're moving on from the last 10 years where we have got this wrong on successive occasions and that we have learned from that period. And it doesn't mean we forget about it. What it means is we show we've learned from it and move forwards. And the Lib Dems can do this by electing me as leader. I've navigated change and overcome challenge throughout my life and I will lead the Liberal Democrats to success again. So given that the Labour Party at the moment with Keir Starmer is moving towards a centre ground, do you think that actually there's an opportunity to essentially pick up those Labour Party people who are on the further left of the spectrum to vote Liberal Democrat? Potentially. I mean, I think where the, probably the biggest opportunity lies is with young people, actually, who whilst they might have voted for Labour over the last couple of elections, I don't think are necessarily as tied in to them as people assume they are. And as we know from young people generally, they, they can move across the political spectrum quite quickly. And what I want to do for them is to show them that that hope of a different future, I think they were sold a bit of a, a, a unicorn uh, with Corbyn. And actually, that wasn't the answer. That sort of ultra left-wing, unattainable, top state, uh, top-down, state-driven approach is not the right approach. And actually, if they want a real difference in their future, it doesn't lie in the far left. It actually lies in the liberal and that they were liberal all along. And if you map where their hearts lie, I think a lot of them are liberal Democrats. It's just that, and a lot of them say this, you know, they feel that they can't trust us because we, we never moved on and the coalition was part of it. Um, and I think now is the moment where we can recapture that young vote. And if we do that, then that's how we rebuild our base for the future. And I don't think that these guys, you know, are, are lost to the far left forever. Actually, I think they were always liberal. It's just up to us to make them see that that was always the case. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Layla. And that is it from us today. Really, thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, what a wonderful initiative. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Centre podcast. And next on, we will have Ed Davey, who will be coming on and being interviewed by me. And we hope to see you then. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.